right, let's hear our second reading. This is uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 14 through 33. Hear the word of God. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ among the, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ." And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I myself am satisfied about you. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied that you are full of goodness. I myself am satisfied that you are filled with all knowledge. I myself am satisfied that you are able to instruct one another. 
That's a pretty good report card to get from the Apostle Paul. Paul's letter to the Romans is beginning to wind down. The first 11 chapters might be the most important chapters in the whole Bible. They are the most thorough explanation of the gospel you'll find anywhere in Scripture. The most thorough explanation of how we can be right with God. How we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When we are saved, we are saved from some things and we are saved to others. We are saved from our sins. We are saved from death and alienation from God. And we are saved to perfect righteousness. We are saved to eternal life and to the life of being sons and daughters of the Most High God. When we are saved from our sins and saved to the perfect righteousness of, uh, of Christ, we then have an amazing hope. Hope that our lives are ordered and filled with purpose by God and will make sense in the end, even if they don't now. Hope that death is not the end of the story, but that is a transition to a glorified life in which the troubles of this life are left behind. Paul talks about all of those things in the first 11 chapters of Romans, a very full and theoretical explanation of the gospel. But then beginning in chapter 12, Paul moves from the theoretical to the practical. He moves from giving us theology about how salvation works to telling us how we should live our lives. In this section, Paul rattles off one commandment after another about Christian living. For those of you who like a preacher to tell you what to do and how to live, something I never much enjoyed myself, then chapters 12, 13, and 14 are perfect. This is where Paul tells the church what to do. If I counted right, Paul gives 40 commandments in just 21 verses in chapter 12 alone, and he's only warming up at that point. Practical, applied Christianity. Commandments about how we should live our lives. That's what we've been working through these past few weeks in these past three chapters of Romans. But now this morning, we're moving into new territory. Paul is beginning to wind down this, the biggest and the most important letter he's ever written. He began with the theological and the theoretical. And he moved on to the applied and the practical. And now he starts getting very personal. From now on, until the end of the chapter, we see Paul step out of the pulpit. We see him step down from his role as prophet and evangelist. And more and more we see Paul as an ordinary man. Paul as just another brother in Christ. Just another sinner that's been saved by grace. It's almost as if we see three versions of Paul in this letter to the Romans. In chapter 1... Paul thunders prophetically about the wrath of God, which is being revealed against all ungodliness, explaining to us theologically that our desire to justify our wicked lifestyles causes us to commit the greater sin. 
that of suppressing and twisting the truth of God. And then in chapter 12, Paul encourages pastorally the brothers and the sisters in practical ways about how to create a loving atmosphere inside of the church since we as the body of Christ should find joy and safety in our fellowship. And we should display for the whole world the peace that God provides us. That when we have peace with God, we also have peace with our fellow man. And now in chapter 15, we begin to see the heart and the everyday concerns of a man who loves the people that he's writing to. A man who longs to see the people that he's writing to. A man who has a few final words of explanation and encouragement to offer. Next week, our final sermon in this series of sermons through the most important book of the Bible, we will see Paul end his letter with down-to-earth personal matters. Little shout-outs to old friends. Specific requests for favors. Minor closing instructions. Final greetings and blessings. The Apostle Paul as a brother and as a friend. In today's passage from Romans chapter 15, I want to lift up one big fat idea that Paul reminds us of. One big fat truth. And then I want to sketch out in a little more detail three reasons why Paul mentions this one big fat truth. Okay, so we've got one fat truth and three reasons. Here's the preview. The one big fat truth is this, that our sin nature is not our true nature. We who are in Christ are new creations. We are redeemed, we are regenerated, we are restored, we are renewed. The old is past, the new has begun. We're no longer enemies of God, we're now children of God, we're loved by God with a passion and a fury that only a parent can understand. We're no longer citizens of this world. But we're citizens of a new world, a heavenly city, a city created by God called New Jerusalem, where God will live and reign in the midst of his gathered saints for all eternity. That's who we are. That's our true identity. That's our true nature. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. Okay, that's the one big fat truth. And now here are three reasons why Paul wants us to know that truth. Number one. So that we will not believe the accuser. Number two, so that we will not be discouraged. And number three, so that we will continue to develop into our true self, into our true nature. So let's start with the big fat truth. Our sin nature is not our true nature. Yes, we do We still sin. Yes, the old man is still alive in us. Yes, our old nature still tugs at us. But at bottom, the true you has been redeemed. It's been regenerated. It's been restored and renewed. That's the true you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. God is transforming you bit by bit. Listen to what Scripture affirms. John, 1 John 1, 
tells us that we are in the light and that we've been purified from all sin. Ephesians 5, 7 says that we are radiant, without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that we are the righteousness of God. Galatians 2.20 says that my old self was crucified with Christ and that my old self no longer lives, but Christ is living in me. Romans 6.11 declares that we are dead to sin, but that we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation, that the old has gone and that the new is here. Luke 8. 15 affirms that we are the good ground in which the sower sows the good seed and that we have good and honest hearts, that we hear the word and that we keep it and that we bring forth fruit. That's who we are. That's the biblical description of the church, of those who have been born again, of those who have turned away from their old life and entered into this new life. Yes, the old man persists. Sure, the flesh hangs around like a cold that doesn't seem to go away like scars from an old disease. But who we are at our core, who we are in our essence, in our nature, that has changed. And that's the big fat truth of the Christian life. So why is this important? Why does Paul write to the Romans and say to them, I myself am satisfied about you. I myself am satisfied that you are full of goodness. I myself am satisfied that you are filled with all knowledge. I myself am satisfied that you are able to instruct one another. Why does he do this? I think there are three reasons. Number one, so that we will not believe the accuser. Number two, so that we will not be discouraged. And number three, so that we will continue to develop into our true self. So let's talk about these in order. Number one, so that we will not believe the accuser. The name Satan in Hebrew means accuser. That's his job. Now, of course, Satan is history. He's done. He's been defeated. But Satan is a tricky beast. He's a nasty piece of work. Here's one of the favorite things that Satan loves to do with Christians. He comes alongside of us and he says, Hey, you really want to do this. You're going to love this. Wait until you taste and see how sweet this is. You're going to wonder why you held back for so long. I know some people think it's wrong, some narrow-minded, legalistic people. But if you think about it for just a minute, you'll see that it's actually okay. And you deserve it. You deserve the deep joy that this is going to bring you. You've been denying yourself for so long. Why hold out? Grab it while you can. And so you grab it. Like an electric fence. Like grabbing a hornet's nest. Like grabbing a fistful of tar. You grab it. And you think to yourself, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? How stupid of me. And then you know what Satan does? 
Satan the accuser, he comes alongside of you again and says, I can't believe you did that. You're disgusting. You call yourself a Christian? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Satan loves to accuse Christians. Think about that for a moment. Satan loves to accuse Christians. That's what his name means in Hebrew, the accuser. If you fail to live up to God's law, Satan will remind you of your failures. He'll quote scripture to you. He'll quote it in a pious tone of voice as if he actually loves the law of God. Let's be very, very clear about this. Not everyone who points out the sins of a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who points out violations of the law of God loves the law of God. Not everyone who accuses others of sin is working for God himself. In Matthew 18, Jesus describes a method for dealing with sin inside of the church, a stepwise method. It's a very deliberate, intentional process of church discipline. It's designed to protect the church. It's designed to restore the sinner to fellowship. In the church, we do take sin seriously, and the goal of taking sin seriously is to help keep each other on the straight and narrow. But notice this. The process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 8 does not accuse, does not destroy, and does not tear down people. It's the opposite of public shaming. It's the opposite of internet justice warrior vigilante lynching. Matthew 18 has no place for hurling accusations against Christians because accusations are the work of the accuser, not of Christ. And all those late night talk show hosts and comedians who take such delight in pointing out the sins and stupidity of this Christian or that Christian They're not making their accusations because they love Christ or because they love the church of Christ. They're making their accusations because they work for the accuser and he pays a good wage. And as Christians, we should not add to Satan's wages with our patronage. As Christians, we do not accuse one another. As Christians, we work with the fallen brother, the fallen sister, to restore them to the path of God and to the fellowship. And as Christians, we also don't accuse ourselves. Satan loves to accuse us. But we who are in Christ should not accuse ourselves. That doesn't mean that we're blind to our own sin or that we're blind to our need for continuing sanctification. What, what that means is that even when we sin, we recognize that our true nature is our redeemed nature. And that the sin that crops up in our lives is just part of the old man that is dying away. Though we sin, we know that we are redeemed sinners. And that our true nature 
is our new nature. Thanks be to God. Second reason we believe the big fat truth of our identity in Christ is so that we will not be discouraged. Of all people on this planet, Christians are the last who should be discouraged. We're on the winning team. This thing works out and we're going to be on top. We have the power and the intelligence of the creator of the universe watching our backs and preparing our futures. We have been transformed supernaturally into what God intends humans to be. Believe it or not, Christians are actually a different species of humans. The Bible tells us that one day we will be like Christ. That one day we will have the same kind of glorified body that Jesus has. That sin will finally be eradicated from our lives. That death and decay will disappear. And that all that is wrong will cease to be. And that all that is right will bloom and flourish. That doesn't mean that we're blind to the troubles of this world. But it means that we see the troubles of this world in the context of the glory that is being unfolded and revealed. Thanks be to God. And the third reason that we believe the big fat truth of our identity in Christ is so that we will continue to develop into our true selves. Mighty oaks grow out of humble acorns. And our true self is an acorn that was planted by God himself into good soil. It will grow. It will become strong. It will weather time and troubles. And it will be grand and glorious one day. I want you to remember that. When you're feeling like you haven't measured up. I want you to remember that when you're feeling like you failed again. You are a new creation in Christ. A good tree will produce good fruit. And you need to remember whose tree you are. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If our identity is in Christ, we will flourish, we will produce good fruit, we will produce abundant fruit, not by our own power, but by the power of Christ that is in us. This morning we come again to the Lord's table. We come to this table to be reminded of our identity. That we are people who have wandered in sin and corruption, but who have been invited into the banquet hall of the King. And we've been given new clothes to wear. Clothes that are appropriate for standing in the presence of a holy king. Pure, spotless robes. The robes of Christ who shed his blood to wash away your sins. That's what you wear. We don't come to this table because we've been good and righteous this past week. Come to this table because we've been invited by our good and righteous Savior. And we come to remember what He accomplished for us on the cross. I invite you to come to this table admitting that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. 
I invite you to come to this table recognizing that you've been invited by Christ who loves you. I invite you to come to this table knowing your true identity. That you are a new creation. That the old is passing away even though it keeps annoying us and cropping up. And as you remember that your sin nature is not your true nature. I invite you to this table in the name of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your word. And we pray that your word would settle into our hearts and comfort us where we are anxious. That it would illuminate us where we are darkened. That it would correct us where we are off the rails. That it would encourage us where we are discouraged. That it would give us a foretaste of the blessing and the glory and the delight that we will know with you one day soon and then forevermore. Amen.